for me, made me go and search for resources around that of like, if you're not a native speaker, um, how do you do that? And I got a lot of perspectives from like the white mother perspective, which is great. I'm so happy that they're raising bilingual children, but it's a different situation when your language has been lost because of generational trauma and to bring it back and to um, try to resurrect it in your family lineage, lineage takes a culturally responsive perspective, takes healing, takes a trauma-informed perspective. What do you do when you're a Latina mom who wants to raise a bilingual child, but you don't speak Spanish? How can you work to overcome shame when it's connected to the language? In this episode, Latina Mom of Two and Harvard-educated doctora of education, Beto Benavides shares her personal multilingual parenting journey. Join us as we talk about the differences in raising a bilingual child when you come from generational and cultural trauma. And we give you tips to help you work on yourself and retrain your mindset. Plus, Beto shares her techniques for raising trilingual kids all the way from Denmark. Yo, a Latina mom, bilingual parenting educator, and now author Jenny Perez, te invito as we take a closer look. Así que no te lo pierdas. Calling all parents, teachers, mental health practitioners, and caregivers. Today's show is brought to you by mental health nonprofit, The Acoma Project. Did you know that almost 60% of Latino youth reported experiencing having mild to severe anxiety? And 20% of Latino youth and youth of color have reported exposure to racial trauma often or very often in their lifetime? The Acoma Project's mission is to build the consciousness of youth of color and their caregivers on the recognition and importance of mental health. Visit theacomaproject.org to register for their free virtual event revelations uncovering truths about the mental health of youth of color on May 16th and 17th. That's Acoma spelled A-A-K-O-M-A project.org or check out the show notes for a direct link. Don't miss this opportunity to educate yourself on the state of our children's mental health. Now onto the show. Welcome to another episode of the Latina Mom Legacy Podcast. I am your host, Jenny Perez. ¿Cómo estás? ¿Cómo estás? If this is your first time listening, thank you for tuning in. Today we have part one of a two-part episode with Dr. Beto Benavides. In this part one, Beto shares with us her personal journey raising trilingual children when she came from a place of shame and generational trauma attached to Spanish. So I can't wait to share this episode with you today. But first, let me tell you what's going on in our legacy community. So first, I have to say huge congrats to you for getting us, getting the Latina Mom Legacy podcast to number 34, 34 people in the parenting category on Apple Podcasts. This is huge. So let me tell you how huge this is. Out of 78,206 parenting podcasts, we peaked at number 34. This is like, ah! Just want to say, Eva Longoria, uh, you're next on my list to interview, okay? <laughs> so if any of Eva's people are listening, hello, um, I would like to have her on my show. <laughs> so last week I mentioned uh, to my Spotify subscribers, if you're a Spotify subscriber, mil gracias. And I had mentioned that I was going to create a poll because in Spotify now they have like these like questions and polls that you can, that you can post, but... I tried, like I spent like an hour trying to create this poll. And let me just tell you, it turns out that I can't post polls or questions on Spotify because the podcast falls under the kids and family category. And I guess that when you're under the, the kids and family category, 
because of the child sensitivity, which I totally get. They don't allow you to post uh, polls or questions. <laughs> so I was just like, no, but why? So anyway, I can't post polls or questions on Spotify. So I posted the question on Instagram. And the question was, what type of legacy do you want to leave for your kids? And Stephanie M. Thomas responded that she wanted to leave a financial, spiritual, and cultural legacy, which I absolutely love. I gave you five or six tips on how to create a legacy. I totally spaced out and didn't include a spiritual legacy. And this for me personally, this is like at the top of my list, right? I definitely want to leave a spiritual legacy for my daughter, for Victoria. I want her to grow up knowing that there is something bigger than herself and believing in something bigger than herself. Definitely at the top of my list. So Stephanie, thanks for sharing. Today, I want to pose a new question, and I encourage you to respond in the gram on Instagram. So today, I want to pose a new question. Do you come from a place of shame, generational, or cultural trauma attached to language, attached to Spanish? And if so, how are you overcoming it, or do you need help to overcome it? So you can share on Instagram at milegasi, spelled M-I-L-E-G-A-S-I. Just look at this episode's post and you can answer there and I'll share your answer with our community. So next on the list, this Saturday at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. PST time, we have our bilingual parenting support meetup. This is our monthly meetup. It's happening via Zoom. It's free for everyone that has taken the online course, How to Raise a Bilingual Spanish Child Practically. This is my course. It's free for if you're enrolled or if you have taken the course already. And this is just our monthly check-in to sort of see where you're at and how your journey is going. Um, so that's happening this Saturday, April 29th. Next Saturday, May 6th, I'm having a free masterclass, Four Steps to Raising a Bilingual Child with Confidence. So you can sign up for that at calendly.com forward slash milegasi, spelled M-I-L-E-G-A-S-I. If you can't make it next Saturday, hit me up on Instagram. And just tell me that you want to sign up for the class. I'll add you to June's waitlist, and I'll give you a couple of times for you to choose from for June. I also want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, The Acoma Project. As I mentioned, they're having their virtual event that you can register for. I will virtually be attending because I want to be educated on our youth's state of mental health. And the more educated and informed we are, the more we can grow and empower our children. So I highly recommend that you register for this event. And that's about all that's going on in our community. If you want to connect with me again, you can hit me up on Instagram at milegasi, spelled M-I-L-E-G-A-S-I. And nada, let's get on, let's get on to the show, what you've been waiting for. Today's conversation is with Dr. Vero Benavides. She's a Harvard-educated doctora of education. Vero has spent her career exploring and advocating for the intersection of identity, language, and learning. Throughout her career in education, she's always sought to create strengths-based environments where all people and children thrive. Now as founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project, Dr. Benavides works to support the reclamation and flourishing of heritage languages across global contexts. Today, we're going to learn more about her multilingual parenting journey. Así que espero que te guste, and hopefully you'll learn a little something today. Bueno, I'll talk to you soon. Ciao, ciao. I am so excited to have today's conversation with 
Dr. Vero Benavides, but we are going to call her Vero. <laughs> uh, Vero, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to dive into a conversation with you. Yes, we're going to be talking a little bit about shame when it comes to language. We're going to be talking about the importance of really diving deep and reclaiming our heritage language for ourselves and for our children and what that looks like. And we'll talk about her journey um, in this and her experience helping other parents and families in this. But first, let's get to know you a little bit better. Beto, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I grew up in Texas, in Houston, Texas, and um, my parents both came from the Rio Grande Valley. If you're familiar with that, it's along the border of Southern Texas, the tip of Texas, and they were the first in their family to go to school at any point, at any level of school. And when they arrived, they spoke only Spanish because that was their home language and their community language. And at that point in South Texas, they were physically punished when they spoke Spanish in school because um, Spanish wasn't allowed. It was an English-only environment. And so pretty quickly, they internalized that Spanish was something that was bad in an academic setting, that Spanish was something that wasn't going to get them academically ahead or professionally ahead or have that kind of upward mobility that they wanted for themselves and for their future generations. So I didn't really understand all of that context when I was growing up as a little girl in Houston, Texas. All I really knew was that like there was Spanish around me. My family spoke Spanish, but I didn't speak Spanish. My parents spoke to us, me and my siblings in English. And there was never really any narrative or story around why it was important to speak Spanish. If you can believe it, like grandma, my grandma, my only living grandparent only spoke Spanish, did not speak English. So we couldn't really communicate with her. And yet there wasn't really any messaging or narrative or questioning that like, hey, this is something that we should hold on to, or this is something that we should learn. And that was kind of my K-12 education, not feeling super connected to my language or my identity as a Latina until I got to college. And it was like, taking me out of the waters of like a black and brown community and putting me in a predominantly white institution, I was like, okay, <laughs> this is different. I do. I am not white, right? I, right. I, I come from a different place. I have a different identity. And I started to take ethnic studies classes and started to kind of dig into curriculum and resources that I had never been exposed to as a child, saw myself reflected, saw the contributions of our people. And I was like, wow, like this is something that I should be proud of. This is something that I should hold on to. This is something that has value. So it was really at that point in college when I dove back into learning more about my roots and identity and language. And I could go on in terms of like where that took me, I became an educator, but like that is kind of where I come from and the story that I carry with me. It's such a powerful story because I think that many first generation Latinas, perhaps second generation Latinas come from a place where their parents perhaps spoke Spanish, but they themselves were either shamed to speak the language, um, they were afraid to speak the language, and perhaps they felt like they didn't want that for their kids. Mm -hmm. right? I think that when you're in an English environment, like I grew up in, in Hialeah, everybody spoke Spanish, like my environment was all mostly Spanish speaking. So I didn't have that experience. But I know that I'm speaking to so many moms that where they grew up in a mostly English environment, and it sort of creates that duality, like, where do I fit in in these both worlds? As you grow up and as you have children, it's when you start to realize the importance of what all that means. As an adult, you kind of see things differently because you don't want 
certain things that were passed on to you. You don't want to pass that forward. I want to go back a little bit to what you mentioned about the different ways in which our community loses connection to their language. And it could be that they grow up in a mostly English, you know, speaking environment or in a community like a white community that doesn't have, you know, access to that. I grew up in a black and brown community that had a lot of Spanish speaking people around me, a lot of Spanish, a lot. I mean, it was in my home. It was in my community. I passively understood it. When I got to school, my parents were told by educators that speaking to us in Spanish would confuse us. Bilingualism wasn't cultivated in the school setting. Um, it wasn't like if we came in as, you know, having some foundation in the Spanish language, which I think if you understand it, that is a form of bilingualism that wasn't seen as an asset that should be developed. And so I say that to point out that like even in communities that are Spanish speaking, that have all of these cultural assets that have students that speak the language, there's often a missed opportunity in school settings where it's not seen as a gift. It's not seen as an asset. Sometimes children are labeled as English language learners, or they're seen as like having deficits or being on a delayed track. And so that's a lot of why I got into education before I even became a parent that I was like, hey, I came from a community that had a lot of resources, but we were labeled low income, we were labeled um, at risk, we were labeled like all of these deficit labels that didn't really help us to see that like we had a lot of stuff going for us that was worth protecting and worth cultivating. And I think that that's really important to name and a lot of why at the Language Preservation Project, which I found it not too long ago, that we work with both home and school environments because to preserve these heritage languages, we need to work across those two settings. To speak to my children, I became an educator because of this passion for having like environments that were culturally and linguistically affirming for children. And I taught in schools for a long time in New York and Mexico City and Cambridge. I got my doctorate um, in education leadership. I was the executive director um, at Bank Street College of Education at their Center on Culture, Race, and Equity. Mm -hmm. So when I had my first child, my son, I was like, I am so ready for this. I am like mm -hmm. an educator. I am going to have the most culturally responsive, woke, Spanish-speaking child like that there ever was. And then I had my son and it completely broke me open because mm -hmm. having a child is an incredibly vulnerable experience. It brings up all of the stuff that, that you might have been trying to push down for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it brought up for me, while I had learned the language, it brought up for me a lot of fear and shame that like, even though I spoke Spanish now, I was like, well, if I speak to him in Spanish or try to raise him in Spanish, like it's not as strong as my English. Like, am I going to mess him up? Or am I like, if I make a mistake, is that like a bad thing? Or should I just be focusing on this? And so I had a lot of insecurities and fears um, about raising him in Spanish because I wasn't as confident in that language as I was in English. And that for me, made me go and search for resources around that of like, if you're not a native speaker, um, how do you do that? And I got a lot of perspectives from like the white mother perspective, which is great. I'm so happy that they're raising bilingual children, but it's a different situation when your language has been lost because of generational trauma and to bring it back and to um, try to resurrect it in your 
family lineage, lineage takes a culturally responsive perspective, takes healing, takes a trauma-informed perspective. And so that's a part of also why we created the Language Preservation Project is for us to do that in, in community with each other. In your research of all these non-native Spanish-speaking communities, mm-hmm. you came across women from probably from different ethnic backgrounds that wanted to teach their children Spanish. What was the biggest difference that you saw in terms of how you could relate to them? I think that's a great question. For me, in going through this journey, had to deal with a lot of shame around my language. And I don't think that that's something that folks who are learning a language without any familial or cultural connection to the language have to deal with. Maybe they're afraid of, you know, speaking the language and making a mistake, which is something universally we can we can relate to. But for me it was tied to my family, the representation of my community. It was tied to my sense of belonging. It was tied to a fear of like what would happen to my children if they didn't have this part of identity. And so it was much more personal, much deeper, much more complex. And I found affinity in other parents who were trying to do the same thing, who had maybe lost the heritage language in their generation or the generation before, and then we're trying to pass it down. And, and I think that's really important to elevate to say that it's possible because for so long, systemically, and then internally, like in our communities, we would hear that that isn't possible, that it is too hard, or that you shouldn't do it, or that the research says this and the science says that. And that's just not true. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. So you have two kids. They are five and two. Tell us a little bit about how you're navigating that. Like now, where are you at? Like, do you speak Spanish? Do you speak English to them? Tell us a little bit about that journey with them. My son was born in New York City and my daughter was born in Copenhagen and very different experiences, um, if you can imagine. So we were in New York City with my son for a year and a half. And I decided to raise him in Spanish at that point. And probably pretty naively, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to like speak to him in Spanish and didn't think about like, you know, how hard it is to learn so much of this vocabulary. Like if you didn't grow up with it, like to learn all of this vocabulary around baby stuff that like me learning Spanish as an adult, I never really had to use. And so I had to really adopt a learner's mindset and really move away from the desire for perfectionism to showing my son that it's okay to make mistakes, that we are learning this together, that the goal is connection and not perfection here. And so for many of the early years in his life, it was like looking up a ton of words and like, you know, trying to create a language rich environment because, you know, I'm an early childhood educator and I know that really language rich environments are important. So doing that in Spanish, but also in the meantime, like building my vocabulary list, um, studying it while I'm breastfeeding, like, you know, trying to grow my vocabulary as much as possible. And then it was easier with my daughter because I had, you know, had years of practice with my son. And continues to be both easier in terms of my comfort, which is speaking in Spanish all the time to them, but more difficult as my son gets older, because 
you know, I have to explain more complex topics to him and continue to grow and, and stretch myself. And I have a Spanish teacher still that I like, you know, have conversations with because my mom, though she's a Spanish speaker, will never ever correct me or will like, just doesn't provide that that support that I would need there. It's important what you mentioned that you have a Spanish teacher. It's important that you mentioned that you're teaching your children that it's okay to make mistakes. Because that's one thing that I, I say time and time again, that uh, the goal is, isn't perfection. It really isn't. And as you grew up with shame associated to the language, you don't want them to associate the language with either pain or resentment. If you focus on creating that bond and that connection first and vulnerability in terms of showing them that, hey, my path, my Spanish is not perfect. I make mistakes too. Let me Google it. Let me look it up. Let me look. Let me pick up a dictionary and let's learn together with my daughter. Like now we're reading and I have a dictionary right by the bed. We read and it's like, she's like, mom, what is that? I'm like, I don't know. Let me look it up. And we learn together and we stretch ourselves. So it's important that you, the mom listening or the parent listening, that you understand that your goal should not be perfection because you're in that pursuit of perfection. When you make a mistake, you're going to feel horrible and you're going to not want to continue. Here is an educator's perspective on how you can raise a bilingual child, even when you come from a background of shame. Exactly. I amen to that. Yes, yes, yes. And I think a big mindset shift that I had to go through was right in the beginning when I was you know, dealing with all the shame and wondering if I was making the right decision, I reevaluated my own relationship to my parents and heritage language because for a long time, I was like, they should have taught me Spanish. Like they knew Spanish and they didn't speak it to me. And, you know, I wish that they did that. And I always had this like, oh, I just, if they just would have done that, then things would have been so much easier for me. And then I, I thought about all of the oppression that they went through around their heritage language. And I was like, it's amazing that I even grew up passively bilingual, given that mm -hmm. what, what they passed on to me was a gift. It was better than nothing. It made speaking Spanish when I decided to dive into that so much easier. And I, and then I needed to adopt that perspective for myself that like, whatever I pass on to my child is good enough and better than nothing. It doesn't have to be perfect, right? If it, even if it is a passive bilingualism, that is a gift given the environment in which we live and, and how each word in non-English is an act of resistance for us in a lot of ways. And if you're listening, you're like, what is passive bilingualism? Let me just give you a clear definition. It's when you understand the language, but you don't necessarily speak it. That is the case in many homes. But to your point, it is a gift regardless. I obviously vouch and say, if you can speak to them a lot in Spanish, then you know, try your best to do that because that, that's only going to encourage them to have more conversation with you. But at the very least, if they grow up around it, hearing it, then they'll get something out of it for sure. Yes. Hi there, Dr. Alpha here, inviting you to come join us at the Acoma Project, May 16th and 17th for Revelations, Uncovering Truths About the Mental Health of Youth of Color, a virtual event focused on a critical topic for a vital population. Please join us.
Now you're living in Denmark. How is the language structure in your home now that you're there? Yeah, great question. So we employ a variety of methods. My partner speaks to the children exclusively in Danish, and I speak to the children in Spanish. And then we do a bit, uh, my partner and I speak to each other in English. Um, So the children hear English um, pretty consistently when we're speaking. And then uh, we do dinner time in English. So we pick a time place to, to use English. And then media, like all media that we have, like if they watch movies on Fridays or things like that, that's in Spanish because that's the minority language here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not so concerned about English acquisition in Denmark because Denmark is a completely bilingual country. It's a really great example of like how to create systems that create bilingual children. I think sometimes in the US, we think that bilingualism is a very difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. And in Europe, it's just like, in most of the world, place. it's mm-hmm. a completely monolingual, uh, multilingual mm-hmm. uh, place. And so um, we're we're not so concerned about English and know that the that the children will absorb absorb it. And for me, I know that like each language acquisition is made easier and supported by a strong foundation in your primary languages. And so um, our children are going to learn to read and write in Danish from school. And for me, I'm trying to teach them the foundations of reading and writing in Spanish and know that if they have those strong foundations in both of those languages, that the, when they get to English reading and writing um, acquisition, it'll be so much easier. Agree 100%. I like that they're getting one language from one person and another language from another person, and that together you speak another language in, in a setting. How do they mostly communicate with, with you guys? our family, the consistency around whatever strategy it is, right? Like if it is that you're choosing that one parent will speak one language and another parent will speak another language or that, you know, you'll do it during this time and place, you have to do it consistently. Like it took a while from when we started doing English at dinner time before the kids started talking in English. Um, So, and it was also a consistent prompt that we had every day at dinner to to get them speaking we said what are you happy for today and then we would help them like practice what they like are you happy for the food are you and and so like after five years of doing that right that my son can speak pretty freely on the on the topic notice that you said after five years that's the other big aha moment if if you're listening is that she didn't say after five months (laughs) she didn't say after 15 months she said after five years my daughter just she's turning eight in, in a few days. And she just started rolling her R's. Like she mm-hmm. just started. Ro- she's almost, we've worked on this for years, not even months, years. So you have to have patience. You have to have patience when, when you're doing this and not expect immediate results. I know. Cause we're so used to seeing everything happen. Like now, like we want to see results like right now, but with this, you have to give it time and you have to be patient. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think I think patience, time, consistency, and for us, a big strategy is just ensuring that they have a strong relationship to the language. So we have babysitters. Um, we have a babysitter who twice a week picks them up and takes care of them for an hour and a half in Spanish. And in our um, my family's from Mexico, so our babysitter also. We are able to find Mexican babysitters Yay. in Copenhagen, even. <laughs> Yay. 
Um, so she speaks to them in that Spanish. And, you know, when we were interviewing babysitters, there were some that were like, okay, you want them to learn Spanish. So we're going to focus on like Spanish and correcting them all the time and this and that. And I want them to correct them. But I was like, actually, mm-hmm. what I want the most is that they have a strong relationship with you and that they feel positive feelings yes. with the Spanish language because my family's all the way, you know, on the other side of the world. And I'm normally the only Spanish input. So I need them to have other positive associations with the language. And I think that that's really important. And then I'll add one more thing that we're we're really kind of explicit about is being super affirming of their language identity, that they see themselves as multilingual speakers. So my son speaks three languages and we are constantly, that's so great that you can speak three languages because you can help you know, mama figure out what to do at the grocery store when she can't, you know, figure out what this Danish mm-hmm. thing says, or, you know, you can help fa under with fa's, uh, Danish for, for dad, um, figure out X, Y, and Z. Um, and so we, we constantly say all of the cool things about his multilingualism mm-hmm. and he sees himself as a language learner. And he's like, when I'm seven, I'm going to learn French. And I'm like, that's cool. Right. So he, he doesn't see any limits on his ability to learn languages. He doesn't feel the shame that I felt, you know, around language learning. And my daughter, who's two, who speaks both languages as a two-year-old, like very kind of phrases here and there, putting some words together, but we're like, she's bilingual too. Like, look at how, you know, even though she's not like totally completely bilingual, we're like, she is a bilingual um, child and she will be trilingual. And so they have these identities from a really early age. How do you bring your Mexican culture into the home? That's a great question. Um, I would say... I had to do a lot of learning about my Mexican culture because of assimilation and like how far my parents went into that, right? Like my mom was like, I'm going to, you know, she, she still makes bunuelos and like other, like a lot of Mexican foods, but she was like, I'm making Frito pie and apple pie and like all the casseroles (laughs) types of things. Like she was, you know, she went far into that, uh, that world. So for me, food is not the entry point because it's really difficult to find the ingredients in Denmark, but the entry point is nursery rhymes, songs, stories. We celebrate holidays, Mexican holidays. There is a Mexican consulate here. So we, you know, go to events that are um, around that and we travel to Mexico when we can as a family and just really let them know very explicitly too, that that's who they are and that's a part of their identity. And that's why they speak this language. Love it. Are there any particular books or resources that your kids love um, that you can share? Yeah. Um, So they really like, um, if you know Monica Brown as an author, um, some of her stories, which are really great and reflective of um, Latin American culture. I think the book is Pio Peep, uh, which is like a, a collection of Um, Latin American nursery rhymes, Jose Luis Orozco, which has a lot of books and um, songs. And I think um, also just more from like, uh, I think more of like a Mexican American perspective, some of the little little libros um, Mm -hmm. books that are out there. And yeah, I definitely I feel like every time I go to the US, I'm like coming back with the suitcase full of like books and materials and things that we bring over here because um, if we do get Spanish books in in Denmark, they're generally from Spain, which is um, linguistically and culturally different. Mm-hmm. And so we try to source as many authentic uh, materials as possible. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing about your family. We'll be right back. 
Thank you, Vero, for sharing your multicultural and multilingual family's journey with us. Here are some tips to help you change your mindset and overcome shame when it comes to Spanish. 1. Acknowledge the impact of cultural and generational trauma. Sometimes you don't even realize that your family has experienced trauma until you step out of your immediate surroundings and comfort zone. 2. Give yourself permission to heal and work on yourself. When you acknowledge the trauma, repressed feelings may come up. Be kind and compassionate with yourself. 3. Recognize that learning Spanish is a positive step towards breaking generational trauma. Learning Spanish is not only a valuable skill, but it can also help you connect with your cultural heritage and community. You can also start to change the narrative from shame and pain to one of pride and strength. 4. Focus on connection, not perfection, for yourself and your child when it comes to language learning. Allow yourself and your children to make mistakes. Note that there is great strength in learning together, and when you focus on creating a more positive connection instead of perfection, you strengthen your family's ability to communicate openly with each other. 5. Seek support. Seek support from others who may have gone through similar experiences. This could be through online communities, support groups, or therapy. Even if those communities aren't reflective of your experience or background, they can still help you identify deeper emotions you may not know you have. And remember, some Spanish is better than no Spanish. Hasta la próxima. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Latina Mom Legacy Podcast. Como siempre, mil gracias. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at the Latina Mom Legacy or at Mi Legacy. You can also sign up for La Lista and stay up to date with everything that's going on by simply clicking on the show notes in your podcast platform or visit thelatinamomlegacy.com and click on today's episode. You'll also find links to today's recommendations and show special. Finally, want to support this podcast? The best way to show your support is to write a review. Reviews are a way the podcast can get visibility and power other moms like you to connect, create, and carry on our Latinx heritage. Un beso, un abrazo, y hasta la próxima. Ciao, ciao. What do you want your legacy to be?